time for our kids to leave us for kids church with their leaders hope you're all uh, excited next week uh, we do have a special service it's a baptismal service we have uh, Tim and Shania getting baptised so we'll have the, the normal service here and then we'll head off to Denham Court for the baptism there in the pool so please come and join us the value of godliness from 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses chapter 4 verses 6 to 10 and this is part 8 in our series in 1 Timothy now last week in our series in 1 Timothy we looked at the deceiving spirits and how they do their work they can be camouflaged like they, they don't come up to the front here on the pulpit you know with head spinning and all that type of stuff but they are camouflaged even in those days even in Paul's day behind church leaders who teach heresies in the church their false teaching can lead to extremes of on the one side on the one hand legalism austerity and on the other hand total freedom and licentiousness both extremes are dangerous for the faith of the believer and unfortunately the people who just take their word and and blindly follow them without looking at the scriptures without being educated on the scriptures they will be led astray and eventually leave the church or abandon the faith altogether it was a problem then 2000 years ago it has been a problem since and it's a problem today this is why it is important to continue in the truth maintain a clear conscience and cultivate the habit of always being thankful for all that God has given us and the Apostle Paul continues this exhortation. Remember, remember that he's, he's writing this pastoral letter to his, his apprentice, Timothy, who was a pastor at the church in Ephesus. So what, what else? What, as he continues his exhortation, what else is he telling him? Well, he's telling him, fulfill your call, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters... You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Timothy, like all pastors, knows that he cannot change people's hearts. Only God can do that. But his responsibility is to point out certain things before the brothers. And when we say brothers, we mean sisters as well. Which things is the Apostle Paul talking about here? Well, the things he's raised in verses 1 to 5, before that, that we looked at last week. But the verb here indicates that he should be continually pointing out error to his congregation. Unfortunately, today... It is considered negative, unloving, intolerant to point out error. The mantra we often hear is that we must be tolerant and accepting of other people's views, even when we disagree with them. 
For example, here I go again. Part of my code of conduct that I've signed with my denomination says that I cannot criticize other pastors. But what they might be doing. Well, guess what the Apostle Paul is doing? He even names them. Just read his letters. However, if you follow the Bible, it is actually one of the the most loving and, and right things for a pastor to do. For this reason, a shepherd does not just need to feed the flock, which he should be doing, that's his primary duty, but also to warn them of the dangers that are about. You might have noticed that on our main roads, apart from speed limits that you see, there are normally another two important signs. One of them is the, the, the destination or the goal where you're going and the distance to, to get there and where you've got to turn off and this and that. But there's also the other warnings regarding hazards that are up ahead. It could be road work. It could be water on the roads. It could be an accident. And, and, and so this is all to... To make sure that you get to your destination, you have to point out the hazards. Likewise, the pastor is to remind the flock of the destination, constantly keep it before them, this is where we're going, but also to warn them of the hazards that might be encountered along the way. Those pastors who fail to do that open the door for their flock to be led astray by dangerous wolves. And then people will be led astray, they will apostatize and leave the faith. And one day you will have to give account for that. You didn't warn them, you didn't tell them. However, if after warning them they still choose to do what they want, it's no longer your responsibility. I told you. And because of this responsibility, it's important, because the pastor is always given out, is constantly to be nourished in the truth. The, the verb here is in the, the present tense, meaning that he has to be constantly nourished in the truth. And, and what is the truth here? It's God's word. It's sound doctrine. It is... It's not simply a matter of standing up here and and waiting for a revelation because normally you're just going to be giving your own personal opinion on whatever. He cannot be feeding people junk food. And it's impossible to feed others if you haven't been fed yourself. Mothers who are nursing their babies, there's a few of those, they know you've got to be feeding yourself if you're going to be feeding your baby. That is why pastors nourish themselves on something solid, which is God's word, and on good teaching that is built 
on God's word because people who are biblically literate, they will know if their pastor is not being fed properly. The second thing that Paul is telling him is to avoid distractions. And this is the first part of verse 7, avoid distractions. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Now in, in today's climate, where we're all very sensitive and get offended very easily, this expression might sound a little bit derogatory. But old wives' tales uh, was a, a common epithet, epithet of, of uh, used to describe something that was mostly accepted in folklore. For example, you've probably heard of the, the five-second rule, right? The five-second rule, what is it? Well, it's when you drop a toast on the floor and if you pick it up within five seconds, right, it's okay. Yeah, you do that? Yeah, it's fine. Even when the jam and the butter fall on the, on the, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Eight seconds, is it? Ten seconds, okay. Well, scientists tell us, okay, I'm a mythbuster here. Scientists tell us that um, apparently the moment it hits, that's when the, the microbes and the bacteria and everything start to get in on it. So, it, yeah, that's what they tell us. Sorry to break your heart. But the good news is that you probably have all those bacteria in your hand before anyway, right? So it doesn't matter. You, your hands are probably dirtier than the floor, right? So it's okay. What the Apostle Paul has here, what he has in mind, is are the many rabbit holes or side issues that a pastor can get caught up in. You're chasing these things everywhere. When he said this, he's probably referring to the, the myths that, of the endless genealogies in, in chapter 1 verse 4 or, or the, in the previous passage, the previous verses, the restrictive diets that people were having to do. And there have always been endless myths associated with the Jewish faith that had a tendency to creep into the Christian church. For example, I'll give you one example. In the apocryphal book of Jubilees, it mentions that one of the supporting arguments for the practice of circumcision and for observing the Sabbath is because the angels in heaven are circumcised and they also observe the Sabbath. You didn't know that, did you? So these and many other teachings were devoid of any scriptural basis and were therefore to be rejected. And Paul tells Timothy to what you need to do is to stay focused on the word of God. Don't get distracted by the word of man or myths and old wives' tale, which, which are not sound teaching. Don't go there. Now over the years I have observed how easily Christians can fall prey to charlatans and who sell their snake oil with a guarantee to 
bring life to your struggling faith and solve your problems. Bringing a bit of oomph to your spiritual life. The promise is along the lines of come to a life-changing experience with God. Uh, uh, This conference will change your life forever. People go and, and yes... They sell the tickets, the place is filled, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a spiritual high that lasts, after you come home, it lasts for a few days, but then you hit reality and the disillusionment hits in, you know, disillusion again, where did all that energy go? Then you have to go to another conference to get another hit, to get another anointing, and you keep chasing conferences. You can't keep doing this. Or you might be, read this book, or try this method, or, and your life will improve. And And there are many secular versions of this. Elizabeth Ford put an ad, learn to play piano in five easy lessons. Right? You'll be mastering piano classes. I, I, you know? Or, uh, no, she didn't do that, by the way. She wouldn't do that. Or, you know, well, I can, I'm running lessons. Learn Spanish in a month. You will dominate the Spanish language in a month. This is why there's a saying, there's a sucker born every day. And we are suckers to those who promise quick and easy answers to tough problems. As long as we pay the money. But none of these deliver. All these quick and easy stuff, nothing deliver what they claim. In a similar way, this instant holiness promise is a myth. If you're still shopping for an effortless way to get the, what the Bible clearly teaches comes only through dedication, hard work, you will be disappointed. There are no shortcuts to godliness. There are none. Except through discipline and hard work. So what is this discipline that is needed? Verses 7 to 9. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So you can see the, the Apostle Paul is making, using similarities. He's using physical training and spiritual training. And there are similarities in the sense that with each one, success is not overnight. Progress only comes with exertion and a proper diet. The ancient Greeks and Romans put a a very high value on physical exercise. So Paul told Timothy to 
train yourself to be godly. And the Greek word for train is gymnazo, which from which we get our English word for gymnasium or gymnast. It can also be translated as exercise or, or discipline. Now we all agree that there are many benefits to being fit and exercising. And I think some of us should definitely be doing more of this. I'm just saying it. But it's jolly hard work. Yet they tell us today that 85% of people who own running shoes never actually do any running. Imagine that! But you look good. Not to mention the countless gym memberships that expire with little use. Then there are the home gym and exercise equipment that are bought, put together and left untouched. It could be the exercise bike, the treadmill, the weights all gathering dust in the garage and then the next council cleanup, there they are on the footpath. Everyone starts out with good intentions. It's all there. But then something happens with the enthusiasm when you realize the length of time. You, you, you say, yeah, but I want to see you. You look at yourself in the mirror because you've got to have a, re- a mirror in your gym, right? You know? You know? And if you don't see the progress, I say, well, what's the point? But promise, you know, within two weeks you'll see change. Yeah, change, all right. Feeling pain everywhere. It's just too hard. However, there are those rare ones who do commit and they see great results. You see them on Facebook and they're the ones trying to sell you all this gym equipment, right? But do the regular workout. Fantastic results. But even then, the Apostle Paul says, the benefits, even those who do commit, is only temporal. As good as these physical pursuits are, they are limited only for this life. However, godliness is a spiritual pursuit with benefits for this life and the next. You can't lose. And and, and the word godliness comes from the old English term which means God-likeness. And and, and this word godliness appears quite often in in the pastoral letters of the Apostle Paul and for good reason. Godliness doesn't mean to be God. It means in our life we aim for the highest. To to have the same character and attitude of God. We want to be like Him, like our Father. It is the opposite of being like the rest of the world. Lowering the standards. Yeah, it's good enough. No. No. This is why Jesus told us, be perfect therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
Now, this, this word godliness is not very popular today. Not a, not a popular pursuit even amongst Christians, or those who call themselves Christians. Maybe it's because godliness does not necessarily make this life the most comfortable, the most pleasurable or easiest. But those who do live godly lives, you can see they are the most contented, the most fulfilling and the joy that they experience is real. Now, and we can't really say that we are not capable of being godly because we, we come up with all these excuses and say, well, you know, so-and-so is not godly and definitely the pastor is not godly. What, what you know, I can't do it. You come up with all these excuses why you're not godly. And yet in his word, in the Bible, this is a promise of God. This is what 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, away with the, any excuse that you might come up with. It says, his divine power, what divine power? The power of the Holy Spirit. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But it's all there. We have been given everything we need for a godly life. Everything. It's there. His divine power. And then he continues. He says, this is Peter, and then he, he says, for this very reason, make every effort, there's that word, make every effort, to add to your faith goodness, and goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. Can you see the steps? One thing, take the next step. You start small and you keep going. Don't try to run that 40 kilometer marathon, right? In your first run. Work yourself up to it. And the Christian life is a marathon. So you probably notice that trying to be spiritually disciplined, just like physical exercise, is a battle of the mind and the body and the spirit. You and I know how difficult it is to, to pray, read your Bible, when we don't feel like it. You get all these things running through your head and you just can't set that time, that time aside and say, no, this is the time I'm going to just put the phone away, turn the television off and pray. You get up on a Sunday morning, And it's too much of an effort to go to church. But Paul, you have to go. You're the pastor. It's it's a battle to be be disciplined, especially with, with our generation that is so guided by feelings. 
Do you know how many times the word feeling appears in the Bible? Four times. Doesn't that tell you something? No, we are not going to be stoic and unfeeling because even in the Bible we know that God displays God, be God-like, right? Be godly. In the Bible God displays emotions like anger and compassion and hate and joy and love. We are created in His image. And we display these emotions. Now our emotions are all over the place because of the fall, because of sin. So we cannot be ruled by our emotions, by our feelings. But we cannot deny them either. And to be clear, I need to clarify something, that being disciplined is not the opposite to God's grace. Because many resist discipline by describing it as, as, as being too legalistic, too works-oriented. Yes, it can be legalistic if your motives are wrong. But if your motive is, your motive is to, to love and to, to please God, who gave his son for you, it's not legalistic. Living by grace doesn't mean sloppy living. Living by grace doesn't mean you join a, you know, a commune and smoke weed all day. No. Not a hippie. Living by grace is living under God's guidance. This is how Paul makes the connection. It's, it's a beautiful verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he makes the connection between grace and discipline. And he says, by the, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Can you see the, the interaction between the two things? Hard work and grace. The grace of God was effective in his life and yet he worked harder than everybody else because of that grace within his heart. But in the end he discovered that the grace of God that was in him was the one that was doing all the work. So grace is not a mattress to sleep on. In fact, it's, it's an energy drink according to the Apostle Paul. Keeps us going. And also it's, 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 a, it's a balanced, wonderful gift of God, which is, the, which is the gift of rest. God has given us the example of his own rest. You read Hebrews, for example, he talks about that. Some people get obsessed with discipline to the point that they can't relax or enjoy any time off. They've got to be doing this. They're They're driven. And we need the balance of scripture which teaches that God rested. God rested after his labor. He made our bodies to require sleep. We're not good stewards if we drive ourselves to the ground, either physically or emotionally. So rest and 
recreation is definitely part of godliness. A disciplined Christian will work hard when he works and take time for rest and recreation and enjoy God's creation when it's needed. It's a gift of God. And verse 10, our eternal hope. Our eternal hope. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. So this expression, labour and strive, we used of wrestlers in, in an athletic uh, contest. So to strive can also mean to, to agonise. That's what it means. That's why we, we labour and agonise. So the, the, the key to, to be disciplined is motivation. You, you think about these athletes with the Olympics once every four years. There they are, wake up, you know, they get in the pool at four o'clock in the morning or hit the, hit the road with their bikes or running shoes every day, day in, day out. And you say, Why? Because they're thinking of the goal, they're thinking of the destination, they're thinking of competing. And if they're good enough, maybe even get selected for the Australian team and then if they're good enough, maybe even get a podium and if they're good enough, maybe even get a gold medal. Relentless practice, year after year. Because of the motivation. US coach, uh, renowned US coach Tom, Tom Landry once said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Isn't that interesting? The job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. So the reason why so many give up is that they lack lack the right goal and motivation to keep going. And I think part of the problem in the Christian life is that the Christian life is not an individual pursuit. The Christian life is a we, together pursuit. It's not an individual sport. You're not training on your own. We are doing this together. That's why Paul says, we, he doesn't, he doesn't say I, he says here, he says, we labour and strive. We labour and strive because of the motivation. The ultimate motivation is to please our Father and then to live in eternity with Him. Remember, That our God is not dead, but he's living. This is the living God, the living God. That is why our living hope is on him. This is the message that we take to the world. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only saviour of all people. 
Now this is a dangerous verse here that we must just clarify. It doesn't mean that all men will be saved. That is what is known as universalism. That doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you believe, you will all be saved. But Paul is, the Apostle Paul is countering the, the false teachers of the day who said that salvation is an exclusive thing for an esoteric group because in a circle that they had this knowledge and therefore they're the only ones who will be saved. Paul is saying no, God wants to save all types of people in every place, in every race, from every walk of life. He has provided salvation for all, but it is only applied to those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. This is why he says, especially of those who believe. But there's more to it than that, in the sense that God is a saviour of all, of all people. And, and, and we benefit, that there is this, this general grace that we all benefit from. For example... Let me give you a biblical example. Noah, there were eight people saved from the flood, Noah and his family. After they landed, were they all Christians? Were they all believers? No. We know some of the the kids sort of fell away. But they were all saved as, as a family. If you've grown up in a Christian family, you have benefited from the blessing of being brought up in a Christian family. You have been saved through many trials because of the fact that you were brought up. In a good Christian family, you learned morals, you learned about hard work, you learned what it is to be honest. You've been saved from jail and hopefully from drugs and all of that. Now, I know there are kids who walk away from all of that. But at least they were, they were given the best start. And yes... Some do fall away, but some of those children remain and recommit their lives in the faith. And maybe years later they do come back. And our hope and prayer is that some of our wandering kids will come back one day to the faith. That's why I say especially of those who believe. Because they will be saved for eternity. Not just for this life, but for eternity. Again, Jesus' work is adequate to save all, but it's only effective in saving those for eternity of those who come to him through faith. It is God who changes hearts, not us. And you know what? As I, as I get older, I'll be 60 soon. The hope of heaven grows brighter every day, especially when I see the world and everything that is happening. The hope of heaven just, yeah, I want to be there. Because you see, if it was all up to us, if it was up to man's cleverness and skill and effort, then we're going to be truly doomed. Why do we have wars? Why do we have conflict with all the smartness and all the cleverness of science and 
all the mediation and effort. Why are there still three, four, five different wars going on at this very moment? Why? Because man's heart hasn't changed. This is why we need to truly believe that our God is with us and for us. Our only hope is in God our Saviour and his strength. We faithfully continue, we persevere, especially through challenging times and discouraging times. This week I was thinking of the the words in this well-known hymn. You probably know it. Swift to its close ebbs ebbs out life's little day. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. That's the second verse. The hymn was written by Henry, Henry Light. He was, uh, Henry Light was left as an orphan at the age of nine and was taken in by an Irish church minister named uh, Dr. Robert Burroughs. Even though Dr. Burroughs had another five children of his own, he took Henry in and, and brought him up and paid for his schooling. Henry graduated in 1814 and became an ordained minister of the Church of England. In his duties, while caring for the sick and dying, Henry himself became ill with tuberculosis and he wasn't expected to live much longer. At the age of 45, Henry prepared a farewell sermon for the morning of September the 4th, 1847, which included the lyrics of Abide With Me. Henry Light passed away ten weeks after, after he preached that sermon and wrote those words that we, that we know as is, is the hymn, Abide With Me. And the last verse of, of Abide With Me, the fifth verse says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Let me ask you, what other hope do you and I have? Change and decay in all around I see. Just look at yourself in a mirror. You look a little bit different from two years ago. I know I do. It's all evident, right? And yet, I triumph still if thou abide with me. Our hope is not in this life, but in the living God who gives us life, both here and into eternity through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.